You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Circa 77 CE, the great natural philosopher Pliny the Elder published the first ten volumes of his encyclopedic masterwork, Naturalis Historia, or Natural History, a work with a scope no less grand than that of all creation, to record all knowledge of everything. In it, between lengthy treatises on all known arts and technology, he writes witheringly of, quote, the most deceptive of all known arts, which has exercised the greatest influence in every country and in nearly every age, end quote. This sinister practice he calls quote, the magic art, end quote. And he goes on to reveal, quote, when and where the art of magic originated and by what persons it was first practiced, end quote. According to this renowned encyclopedist, quote, there is no doubt that this art originated in Persia under Zoroaster, this being a point upon which authors are generally agreed, end quote. But who was this Zoroaster, or Zarathustra, as the Persians called him? A simple wise man as Friedrich Nietzsche would eventually characterize him? A holy man who brought the true God's faith to humanity, as Zoroastrian scriptures remember him? Or a sorcerer, whose elite class of priestly adepts spread his magical craft across the world? Welcome to Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, cataloger of this Encyclopedia Grimoria, an ongoing compilation of the history of grimoires and magical traditions and figures, be they myths, legends, frauds, or something more. Turn away as I blow off the dust of several millennia from our oldest volume so that you may read its title, On the Origin of Magic, the true gift of the Magi. Speaking of gifts, I want to take a moment to thank my newest patrons. Thanks Lauren, Rick, Dave, Tony, and Kat. And thanks to Sarah and Joe for moving up to a higher pledge tier. Thank you all for your generous support of the show. In this episode, we begin another ongoing series, like the Royal Blood Mysteries, 
in which I invite you to peer into the darkness of Western esotericism and its many strange stories. We begin with Zarathustra and the priesthood of supposed sorcerers that followed his teachings, the Magi of Zoroastrianism, because of the claim that the practice of magic originated with them. Certainly we know that the word magic is derived from the Latinized ancient Greek word for them, as is the term mage, synonymous with wizard, taken from the singular for one of these Zoroastrian priests, a quote-unquote magus. Now you may recognize this word specifically from the nativity story celebrated every Christmas, as part and parcel of that legend is the story of the three kings or wise men, also referred to as magi, who followed a star to witness the birth of Christ. I may save my examination of that particular legend for this year's Christmas special, but it illustrates clearly the notion that these figures were respected in ancient Greece as bearers of uncommon wisdom. More than that, though, the Magi were seen, at least by the time of the Roman Empire, when Pliny the Elder wrote of them, as the founders of an insidious tradition of sorcery. In this series, I want to look at the many and various stories throughout history about the occult and the arcane, about alchemy and theurgy and necromancy, about secret societies and spell books. This is such a rich vein that, in order to prevent the podcast from becoming too focused on this topic all season, I will add to it non-contiguously, meaning I will start here, but the next volume of my Encyclopedia Grimoria may not arrive until after some intervening episodes, focused on other kinds of stories. I plan to make each volume a standalone entry if possible but I may resort to multi-parters if a story remains incomplete, just like my Royal Blood mysteries. Eventually, I might even set up RSS feeds for these series as a kind of larger, odd-past podcast network, these being a kind of spin-off, Historical Blindness Presents the Encyclopedia Grimoria, etc. So if in the future you're listening to this and haven't checked out the Historical Blindness podcast, go listen. And for the rest of you, my loyal listeners, I hope you enjoy the first volume of my Encyclopedia Grimoria, in which, counterintuitively, I begin with an entry under Z for Zoroaster, the first Magus. Before we undertake a history of magic, it proves necessary to provide a definition of the word. In its original sense, magic would mean the wisdom of the magi. That definition is useful to the discussion at hand, but proves inadequate when considering the wider history of magic. And defining magic is no easy task. It has been widely debated among anthropologists and historians, with the final result that it is more and more viewed as a useless or meaningless term, inappropriate as a descriptor in scholarly works. And the very act of defining it has been called quote-unquote maddening by one of those scholars, Owen Davies, who has written much on the subject. It's argued that the term magic brings with it many cultural connotations that may not be applicable in every case. For example, in its Western usage, 
the term conveys a sense of otherness or transgression, indicating practices outside of social norms or acceptable boundaries, when that may not always be the case. Likewise, a sense that the practitioner of magic might be considered primitive because of assumptions about the term and the implication that they might actually be capable of producing supernatural effects when they are not and would not themselves consider their practices out of the ordinary. All have led most scholars to abandon the term. But I will endeavor here to walk that tightrope in order to clarify my use of the term. First, I differentiate magic from the art of illusion, meaning the performance of illusions for the purposes of entertainment, as observed on Las Vegas stages and at children's birthday parties. Second, I would clarify that much that has been called magic in the past is recognized today as medical or physical science. However, its explanation today does not preclude its being considered a magical practice in the past. The first criterion for considering any practice magical would be that it ostensibly seeks by some obscure means, whether that be through something as acceptable to the modern mind as chemistry or something as anathema to rational thought as spellcraft, to uncannily influence, manipulate, exert power over, or gain a preternatural understanding of the natural world. The second working criteria would be that, due to the very obscurity of these means and or their uncanny effects, the practice at least appears to partake of the supernatural. This definition, one might acutely discern, does not rule out frauds, provided they purport to be accomplishing some magical effect over the natural world through apparently arcane practices. With this working definition in hand, we can already see that magic in some form preceded the Magi. For beyond the term magic, the ancient Greeks had further words to denote such activities, such as nequomantia or necromancy, referring to communication with the dead, and pharmaka, from which we derive the word pharmacy, which in antiquity also meant the preparation and use of drugs, but also poisons with the implication of what modern fiction would call potions. Another ancient Greek word for a magical art was goetia. This word seems to have been used to refer to sorcerers, but it may have derived from the sound its practitioners made, a low wailing, which has led some to believe that the term referred to ritual mourners bemoaning the dead. There is much written about goetic magic asserting that it is the practice of summoning demons to answer questions or do the magician's bidding, putting it at the other end of the spectrum from another magical art called theurgy, which summons beings less dark for much the same reasons. According to the lore that has grown up around the term, goetic arts were developed not by mankind but by a mythical race, the dactyls, who also invented metallurgy and founded the Olympic Games. Nor was this the only version of history suggesting that magic, rather than originating from Zoroaster, was given to mankind by another race of beings. For example, one text appeared in the 4th century CE, attributed variously to Clement of Alexandria 
or Bishop Clement of Rome, who would become Pope Clement I, which claimed that fallen angels had taught humanity magic. This corroborated another apocryphal text from a century earlier, the Apocalypse of Enoch, which tells of these fallen angels' dalliances with human women, essentially the story of the Nephilim from Genesis 6, with the further addition that these so-called watchers tutored their consorts in sorcery. However, these tales arrived far later in history and were spread through books of dubious reliability, written by authors that took false names. This we will find to be a typical hurdle in critically evaluating the history of magic. Much of its provenance is problematic, with entire traditions about ancient history based on spurious claims asserted by anonymous authors centuries and sometimes even millennia later. The same is true even of the association of the term magus or magi with Zoroastrianism which was a prominent religion in Persia long before it was associated with magicians in Greece. When the term magi is first seen in ancient Greek texts, it is not in reference to the followers of Zoroaster. The magi were certainly considered crafty and alien, their rituals strange, but their clear identification with the Persian traditions promulgated by Zarathustra did not happen until the 4th century BCE. Before that, Zoroastrians were depicted more as fire worshippers than conjurers or spellcasters. And the Magi were decried for their human sacrifices and their incest, none of which are related to Zoroastrian belief or ritual. In fact, another point against them was the way they sang in suspiciously low voices, which seems to suggest that these Magi were actually practicing Goetia, the quote-unquote howling art. Could these have been two very different cultural practices, perhaps both foreign to ancient Greeks and therefore confused for each other? Certainly by the Roman era, all the other words for magical practices, like Goetia, Necromantia, etc., were routinely folded into the term magia. So some conflation or syncretism seems likely. The result is that today our universal term for all sorcerous arts remains the word magic. Now for a brief intermission. Hi listeners, remember that the ads and sponsors of this program only contribute a small portion of the already meager earnings of this show. If you'd like to contribute to this project and help me turn it into a viable enterprise, remember that you can pledge support on Patreon at patreon.com slash historicalblindness. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to an ad-free stream of the show that also includes teasers and fully produced patron-exclusive bonus episodes. And at higher tiers, you can get early access to episodes and other perks. Become a patron of the show today and get the full story. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, 
Just answer a few questions online and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hello, I'm Peter Laws, the host of the hit podcast Frightful, which offers very scary true stories. But as I research that show, I keep finding other true tales that aren't so terrifying and yet are fascinating and often deeply moving. That's why I launched a second podcast called A Curious Past, telling forgotten incidents from history told in immersive audio with music, sound effects, and on-location recording. For example, you can join me on location in an underground nuclear bunker in England as I learned how Britain prepared for the potential of war in the 1980s. I loved recording on location in Transylvania to uncover the history of this beautiful and spooky land beyond the forest. And I was particularly touched by the big response to my episode on the Nazi massacre of urhador Suglin, an entire French village that was invaded by the Nazis in 1944. To be honest, it was sometimes hard to narrate that without breaking into tears. So why not join me, Peter Laws, by searching our curious past in podcast apps? Because, you know, sometimes it's the unique moments from another person's yesterday that helps us understand ourselves today. Now, back to the show. What we can say, with some certainty, is that certain magical arts attributed to Zoroaster could not have been invented by him. I'm speaking now of the practice of astrology, which today we might not think of as magic, but which was certainly considered magical in antiquity, and by my definition may still be considered a magical art, whether or not you believe it to be bogus. Astrology is one of the magical arts specifically ascribed to Zoroaster by Pliny the Elder. And indeed, the name Zoroaster even means star priest or star diviner, which appears to describe an astrologer. However, to credit him with inventing the zodiac and the art of divining the future based on the stars, one has to rely on a problematic timeline. The oldest archaeological evidence we have of the practice of astrology appears to be from the 3rd millennium BCE in ancient Mesopotamia. More specifically, these were lists of omens in the sky and astral predictions compiled for Akkadian and Sumerian kings. Ancient Mesopotamia may have encompassed or at least abutted the region from which it is said Zarathustra came but all accounts point to him being born many years later, which would seem to disprove at least the claim that he invented this one magical art. You see, Zoroastrian tradition holds that their central prophet was born in the 6th century BCE, 
some two millennia after the first known use of astrology in Mesopotamia. And his original Persian name, Zarathustra, had nothing to do with the stars and everything to do with a practical, earthly profession, its meaning having something to do with handling and caring for camels. His placement in the 6th century BCE derives from numerous texts indicating that, for example, there were 258 years between his appearance and the age of Alexander the Great, or that he was known to have met with and taught Pythagoras, who lived from around 570 to 490 BCE. However, many scholars cast doubt on this timeline, suggesting it was invented by Magi looking to cement their prophet in a historical context like Christ, or that it was a fabrication of Greek thinkers who wanted to minimize the claims that Greek philosophy was derivative of Eastern philosophy. For example, there are numerous earlier claims that Plato was influenced by the teachings of the Magi, and that Zoroaster had lived some 6,000 years before Plato. Plutarch agrees with this placement of Zoroaster in the far reaches of prehistory when he declares that Zoroaster lived 5,000 years before the fall of Troy. If this were the case, then one supposes he could have invented astrology. But through linguistic analysis of the language used in the Avesta, the oldest of Zoroastrian scriptures, modern scholars propose that Zarathustra lived sometime between 1200 and 900 BCE, once again making him far younger than the art of astrology. Many of the passages in ancient Greek texts that mention Zoroaster further confuse matters by indicating he came from Bactria in eastern Iran, or Media in western Iran, or referring to him not as a Persian, but as Zoroaster the Chaldean, or as Zoroaster the Assyrian. This has led to speculation since the name Zoroaster or Zarathustra, or something similar was likely popular among adherents, that perhaps some of the Zoroasters recorded by Greek writers were different men living in different times and places. Indeed, even Pliny the Elder concedes that, quote, whether there was only one Zoroaster or whether in later times there was a second person of that name is a matter which still remains undecided, end quote. Then there is the further problem of Christian writers in antiquity identifying him with biblical figures arguing variously that Zoroaster was the same person as Adam and Eve's descendant Jared, or Noah's cursed son Ham, or Ham's grandson, the king Nimrod, or the Babylonian prophet Ezekiel, all of whom lived in different times and places. To clarify, then, we must return to the Zoroastrian scriptures, to the Avesta, or more specifically the oldest portions of it in the Yasna, which includes a series of hymns said to have been written by Zarathustra himself, called the Gathas. As the author of these Gathic texts, Zarathustra is the founding figure who brought this religion to mankind. However, scholars have pointed out that since different points of view are used throughout, sometimes first person and sometimes third, the Gathas should be considered the product of an oral tradition to which many priestly figures like Zarathustra may have contributed. Nevertheless, 
When the Gathas mention Zarathustra, they accord him the role of forerunner, the first proponent of the faith. So Zoroastrians, like Christians, have come to think of him as a prophet or messenger, bringing to mankind words authored by their conception of God, a being named Ahura Mazda. Zoroastrianism presents a clearly defined cosmogony, or theory of the universe, complete with a detailed eschatology, or end times and afterlife scenario. According to the teachings of its scriptures, all of reality is divided in a dualistic conflict between two principles, characterized as good and evil, life and death, light and darkness, illness and health, order and chaos. These principles are embodied in two spirits, the omniscient god Ahura Mazda and its dark and evil counterpart, Angra Manyu. The conflict between these two deities led to the creation of the world of living beings, our world, which has an expiration date. It would only last 12 millennia, during which time the conflict between Ahura Mazda and Angra Manyu would play out here among the divine sustainers of order and the demonic agents of chaos, and among the mortal men and women who were created thereafter. Upon death, these mortals' souls would be subject to judgment, weighing their good and evil thoughts and thereby deciding whether, when they crossed to the afterlife, the bridge they took would grow as wide as it was long and lead them to the quote-unquote best existence, or whether it would narrow to a razor's edge and cast them into a place of torture. The souls thus damned would only be redeemed at the end of the world, when after an apocalyptic age of disasters, the dead are raised, and the dragon of the heavens sets the earth ablaze, purifying mankind. Now, if some of this sounds familiar to you, that's because it is very similar to numerous later traditions. Indeed, there appears to have been extensive borrowing from Zoroastrian belief systems in the establishment of other religions. For example, the Roman mystery religion of Mithraism took its central figure from Zoroastrian myth, as Mithra was one of Ahura Mazda's divine figures on Earth and many have looked to the Zoroastrian dualistic conception of co-equal spiritual forces as the origin of other dualistic cosmogonies that see good in the spiritual and evil in the material, such as Manichaeism and Gnosticism. The similarities abound when it comes to Judeo-Christian traditions. Beyond the obvious parallels, the creation myth, the resurrection of the dead at the end of the world, and the judgment of their souls before being granted entry to paradise or being consigned to hell, there are even further connections. Mankind originates from a first man, like an Adam, named Gaia Maratan, whose descendant, Yima, is directed by Ahura Mazda to preserve different forms of life in a bunker during the cataclysmic floods Mazda sends, much like a Noah. Even the figure of a savior prophet like Christ is present, in that Zarathustra imparts to all mankind the true revelation of God, thereby kicking off the final three millennia before the end of the world. 
and like Christ, he would return. In Zarathustra's case, he will return three times, at intervals of a thousand years. His return will be in the form of a son born miraculously every thousand years to a virgin who bathes in a sacred lake that has preserved his semen. Each of these sons will act as a quote-unquote revitalizer, the third and final son helping to bring mankind toward the quote-unquote perfectioning at the end of all things, all of which, while fundamentally spiritual and in places decidedly mythic, gives no indication of the practice of ritual magic among the religion's adherents. Why then is Pliny the Elder so adamant in naming Zoroaster as the originator of magic? In the way of sources, he names one Austenes, a supposed sorcerer who accompanied the Persian king Xerxes during his invasion of Greece, as, quote, he who first disseminated, as it were, the germs of this monstrous art and tainted therewith all parts of the world, end quote. The problem is there doesn't appear to be any surviving historical evidence of this Austenes having ever actually existed, let alone writing major works on magic that Pliny says were quote-unquote still in existence. So we look to the principal source that Pliny cites on all things magical, Democritus, a contemporary of Socrates, who Pliny states developed the art of magic through his writings during the time of the Peloponnesian War. Since many lost writings are preserved only in other writings that reference them, we may assume that Pliny's understanding of the lost magical writings of Austenes came from the magical works of Democritus. And here we begin to see the central obstacle to tracing the origin of magic to the Zoroastrian Magi. These works about magic attributed to Democritus do exist, but they are believed to have been written by someone else, an Egyptian by the name of Bolus of Mendes, who lived some two centuries after the real Democritus. It is thought that Bolus attributed his work to Democritus specifically because of his association with Pythagoras, who, if you recall, was said to have studied under the Magi. Thus, Democritus would have a better claim to magical knowledge. This is typical of Hellenistic thought, which believed true wisdom and esoteric knowledge predated the Greek philosophers and had come from the East. Thus, numerous works on magic also appeared during the Hellenistic period that were attributed to Austenes and even to Zoroaster himself, all of which have been definitively proven to be pseudepigrapha, or works spuriously attributed to famous figures in order to lend them an authority they might not otherwise have. In 1938, French scholars Joseph Bidet and Franz Cumont published their seminal work on the subject of Zoroastrian pseudepigrapha, the Hellenic Magi, presenting in exhaustive detail all known texts and fragments and asserting that their contents do not correspond with Zoroastrianism, 
proving their false attribution. However, citing certain elements of the texts that did seem authentically Persian in origin, they argued that they had been written by quote-unquote Megasaeans, authors with Zoroastrian beliefs who lived in the Roman Empire at such a geographical and chronological remove from the heart of Zoroastrian belief that they had developed an unorthodox form of the religion. However, this conclusion has been challenged as recently as 2006 by a quack, that is, by a German Egyptologist with the unfortunate name of Joachim Friedrich Quack. Building on theories that were put forward as early as the 1960s, Quack goes through example after example to show how works by pseudo-Zoroaster on herbalism, amulets, and astrology, and works by pseudo-Austenes on demonology and alchemy all show decidedly Egyptian influence rather than reflecting Persian traditions. To illustrate both this Egyptian influence and the hopeless confusion caused by the mysterious authorship of these texts, we'll look at one of Quack's examples, the Greek alchemical text Physica et Mystica, in which Democritus is initiated into the mysteries of alchemy by Austenes. In the text, this initiation takes place in Egypt. We know that the book was not written by Democritus, but rather by the aforementioned Hellenized Egyptian author Bolus of Mendes. Still, one might be tempted to imagine, despite the spurious authorship, that perhaps Austenes had lived in Egypt. But the fact that the story goes on to introduce Austenes' son, who is also named Austenes, makes even one disposed to believing the myths wonder just how many Austenes and Zoroasters there might have been. Quack concludes his study by theorizing that the authors of these Megasean texts were Persians, but that they had for generations since Alexander the Great's conquest of the Achaemenid Empire been living in Egypt, their religious beliefs soaking up Egyptian esoteric thought. However, it seems just as likely that Egyptian esoteric writers steeped in the magical traditions of that culture, which itself is long and varied, may have cloaked their writings in the guise of Eastern wisdom in order to introduce it to Hellenistic Greece, which was so enamored of ideas that originated in the Orient. In this way, the Hellenistic Greeks might be considered analogous to those in the Austro-German New Age movement that I discussed in my series on Nazi occultism last year. Indeed, the mythical homeland of the ancient Persians recorded in the Zoroastrian Avesta is referred to as the Aryan Expanse. The word Aryan originated in Zoroastrian scripture, clearly as a cultural group, but eventually it would be twisted into a racial designation by those seeking to justify their feelings of superiority over others. Similarly, it seems Zoroaster and the ancient Persian religion that honors him may have been misappropriated in antiquity and used to put the more respectable face of the Magus on practices the Magi did not pioneer. 
creating perhaps the biggest misnomer in history by forever after attaching their name to dark arts that may in fact have come from ancient Egypt. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. Special thanks goes out to my partner patrons, Joe, Jacob, Robert, and Diane. Thanks for coming to me to initiate you into the mysteries of magic. Some music on this episode was provided by Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. Be sure you visit patreon.com slash historical blindness and pledge to get ad-free episodes and exclusive content. Up next, I'm planning a mini-sode on an ancient artifact with connections to the Magi, which tells a story with a kind of royal blood mystery at its heart. Follow the show on social media and give it a review when you can. And read my novel, Manuscript Found. You can find it at historicalblindness.com and on Amazon. Or pledge at a higher tier on Patreon and I'll give you a copy for free. Until next time, remember, no matter how confident and convincing an author might seem, he may not be who he says he is.